This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest resource that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm doing really well. How are you doing, John? Good. I'm really excited about hitting another wrap-up episode here where we get our top 10 articles. Yeah, me too. You know, we weren't sure if people would like this or not, but these roundup episodes have turned out to be some of our more popular ones. So I think people appreciate the quick summaries. And for our listeners, if you want to know more about any of the articles, you can go and listen to the full episodes. So as you said before, this is going to be a lightning roundup of the 10 most recent articles that we've covered. Um, So this is a great way for anyone that's really kind of busy just to kind of tune in for 30 minutes and, and catch up on basically the cliff notes. So episode 21, um, this was a really kind of interesting one, kind of challenged a lot of our paradigms about pain management for patients with substance use disorder. It was safety and preliminary outcomes of short-acting opioid agonist treatment. They called that SOAT for hospitalized patients with opioid use disorder. It was from Addiction Science and Clinical Practice from February 2023. And basically, this was a case series of 23 high-risk patients with opioid use disorder admitted to the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center from August 2021 to March 2022. Patients were hospitalized, and they were offered this SOAT protocol or short-acting opioid agonist treatment protocol. And basically, all patients were offered in-house buprenorphine or methadone. They could accept or decline it. They received scheduled oral oxycodone and hydromorphone every four hours with sedation holds. They had breakthrough IV hydromorphone as much as needed. And based upon clinical context, um, it was reevaluated and escalated every four to 12 hours by a clinical pharmacist. And basically, the idea was that you would escalate patients uh, in terms of their pain management to capture their symptoms as best as possible, regardless of kind of how high the dose was. Patients were offered a transition at the end of the trial to either buprenorphine or methadone, and that was based upon shared decision-making if they left with a patient-directed discharge or kind of previously called against medical advice. The study looked at a variety of primary outcomes predominantly sentinel safety events, which was administration of naloxone, over-sedation, or falls. There were secondary outcomes related to treatment retention, and that was patient-directed discharges, discharges on methadone or buprenorphine maintenance therapy, so linkage to care, length of stay for patients with patient-directed discharge, so did they leave against medical advice on day one or day six, and whether or not a patient went home with a prescription for naloxone. The results overall showed that the SOAT intervention was very safe, with possibly only one patient receiving naloxone. It was interesting. Um, They actually questioned whether the naloxone was ever received. It was a documented naloxone administration in the operating room, and there was actually no kind of collaborating documentation stating that this was necessary. So I think it might have been an error. Um, One patient experienced over-sedation, and that was only in the context of them using their own illicit opioid supply in the hospital as well, in addition to the protocol, so not related to any kind of protocol medication, and there was no falls Treatment retention was also improved in the intervention with patients having longer lengths of stay prior to patient-directed discharge. More patients were linked to treatment in the outpatient setting upon discharge for opioid use disorder with either buprenorphine and methadone, and more patients received uh, prescriptions for naloxone at the time of discharge. Overall, this study isn't really practice changing for me, but it does make me feel better about what I already do. I think that kind of patients admitted for uh, a medical issue with opioid use disorder, they're very pain sensitized. So escalating doses of opioids to kind of capture their symptoms not only improves clinical outcomes, but is very safe in this population. 
Yeah, I think this was a great paper. It really changed. I won't say it changed my perspective because I was already kind of doing this, but it really points out how kind of old practice pattern was to withhold as many opioids as possible from people with opioid use disorder. And this does the opposite. It gives them as many as they need to stay comfortable while they're in the hospital to facilitate a more successful hospital stay and treatment of whatever is the underlying cause. And I think this paper actually will make a big difference. I was on a panel discussion with our pain pharmacist and some other people about treating hospitalized patients with opioid use disorder. And everyone on the panel was aware of this paper. And at our institution, you know, we don't really follow that protocol, but is just much more comfortable prescribing opioids to people with opioid use disorder to help them with their hospital stay. And it links them to care afterwards more successfully. So I think that's the other big point here is that you're actually not hurting them. You're actually helping the opioid use disorder. Yeah, exactly. Next paper, this was episode 22, Contingency Management for Coronary Artery Disease. So this paper was called High-Risk Coronary Plaque Regression in Cash-Based Contingency Management Intervention Among Cocaine Users with HIV-Associated Subclinical Coronary Atherosclerosis. That is a huge mouthful. It's from April 2023. So for background, cocaine use and HIV infection seem to have a synergistically negative effect on the heart, and patients with cocaine use disorder and HIV are at very high risk for cardiac events. This study looked at coronary artery atherosclerosis and what happened to it in patients who were in contingency management programs for cocaine use disorder. And for those of you who might not know, a contingency management is a type of therapy where patients are given rewards, like money usually, for staying free of cocaine. And the longer you go, the more money you get. It's one of the only strategies that has been shown to be effective to treat stimulant use disorder. This study looked at 76 people with HIV cocaine use disorder, and established coronary artery disease who were in a contingency management program to treat their cocaine use disorder. It was a 12-month program, and they looked at their coronary plaque volume and levels of endothelin-1, which is a biomarker indicating coronary artery disease. They looked at baseline, 6 months, and 12 months. Coronary plaque volume, endothelin-1 levels are both markers, again, of coronary artery disease. So they were just seeing if those markers got better, got worse, or stayed the same if patients were in this program. So we thought it was a valid trial, although I would describe it as an exploratory study. It wasn't a randomized trial. It's not necessarily generalizable because it's a very specific population. And the outcomes are what I would call, I call them physiologic outcomes, but they're not clinical outcomes. So they didn't look at cardiac events. They just looked at these biomarkers and the coronary plaque volume. But it was was valid if you take those two things into account. So the results, the contingency management worked to help people stay free of cocaine. And that's not new information, but it worked in this study as it has in many others. All 69 participants who completed the study reduced their cocaine use And of those, 25, which was 36%, achieved cocaine abstinence. Both endothelin-1 level and coronary plaque volumes were lower at 12 months than they had been at the beginning of the study. And so I would say that this study demonstrated that contingency management is effective in achieving a sustained reduction in cocaine use and also provided compelling evidence that reduction in cocaine use can lead to cardiovascular benefits in this extremely high-risk population. So I personally am not going to be able to change my practice in response to this article since I don't really treat this population and I don't offer contingency management. But it does give me some data if I want to tell patients that stopping the cocaine 
might really reverse some of their heart disease. And also, if they do need help, I could refer to a contingency management program. What did you think of this one, John? Yeah, I think it's an interesting article. And I think that kind of the biggest takeaway point I get from this article is that, you know, we know that contingency management works. The problem with it is who is funding it? Where are we getting the funds for this? And I think that as we look forward into like the cost benefit analysis, cardiovascular disease is incredibly expensive. And like, you know, in terms of our Medicare spending, cardiac testing makes up a humongous percentage. I once saw a graph recently about how exponentially these tests are increasing in cost, but also in terms of um, just kind of how much money we're using into them. So I think the idea that we could actually target coronary artery disease itself as possibly a cost-saving mechanism to pay for contingency management, I think is very interesting and certainly something for further exploration. Now, I did another one because you were having an awesome adventure somewhere far away. The next episode is 23 called Eat, Sleep, Console. So this article is from the ACT Now Collaborative and was called Eat, Sleep, Console Approach or Usual Care for Neonatal Opioid Withdrawal. So in utero, exposure to opioids is common in the U.S. In Pennsylvania, where we are, 13.3 out of 1,000 neonates are exposed to opioids in utero in 2020. The traditional practice to treat neonatal opioid withdrawal is to use something called the Finnegan Neonatal Abstinence Scoring Tool, which is a score somewhat modeled after the adult cow's scoring system to score withdrawal, basically the baby version of the cows. But strong evidence that this is the best approach is really lacking. There have been concerns also that this Finnegan tool overestimates the need for medication with opioids, and it doesn't look at the specific manifestations of withdrawal in neonates. So Eat, Sleep, Console is a different way of evaluating the neonates who are going through withdrawal, and it's a more of a functional assessment of the infant's ability to eat, to sleep, and to be consoled. That's why they call it Eat, Sleep, Console. It also uses non-pharmacologic interventions as first-line treatment and empowerment of families and caretakers to care for the infant as it goes through this. This Eat, Sleep, Console assessment approach evaluates a neonate's ability to eat one or more ounces of formula or to breastfeed well, to sleep undisturbed for at least an hour, and to be consoled within 10 minutes. So if the baby can do those three things, they're considered to be okay. So that's the Eat, Sleep, Console method. And the clinical question in this trial was, does the Eat, Sleep, Console method for infants with neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome reduce the time to discharge readiness compared to usual care with the Finnegan neonatal abstinence scoring tool? The study was conducted in 26 hospitals in the U.S., and they all used the Finnegan score, and they were randomized to a time to transition to the Eat, Sleep, Console method. So all 26 hospitals transitioned, but they did it at different times, and they compared outcomes before and after that transition in each hospital. The primary outcome was time from birth to medical readiness for discharge, using a standard definition of medical readiness. And then secondary outcomes were receipt of pharmacologic therapy to treat neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, length of stay, and safety outcomes during the first three months of life. So we thought this was a valid trial, really well designed, and it answered the question that it was asking. The results showed that the number of days from birth to readiness for discharge was 8.2 in the Eat, Sleep, Console group and 14.9 in the Finnegan group. So a huge difference between those two. And the use of medication was reduced by 32%. Adverse outcomes were the same in both groups. So basically, the Eat, Sleep, Console approach got those babies out of the hospital much more quickly and reduced their need for opioid medication. 
So in conclusion, I would tell my patients that using the Eat Sleep Console method will lead to earlier discharges, better breastfeeding, and no increase in harms. And I can confidently recommend they seek out hospitals where this is the protocol to care for patients with neonatal opiate withdrawal syndrome. And this is the protocol we use at St. Max's. So I'm always happy to recommend our patients go there. Yeah, I love I love this study. I think it's really kind of interesting just the fact that a newborn is is really kind of somewhat feral in the household. Things like eating, sleeping, everyone getting their rest, making time to go to the bathroom, those kind of become alpha priority for the family. And so I think that those outcomes kind of looking at people eat, sleep, console, those are very important things to a new mother, a new father, and also to the baby itself. So I think that's a much easier way of kind of assessing how someone's doing. I love the Finnegan too, but I think that it is a little more complicated and there's a lot of things there that can kind of be misinterpreted to give higher scores on prolonged hospitalization. So very interesting. I think this is pretty much sounds like it's standard of care at this point moving forward. Yeah, after this study, it will definitely be standard of care. Moving on to episode 24, smoking cessation and mortality. Now, this is a study you and I both liked a lot because we're both primary care doctors and we talk about smoking all the time. So this study was titled Association Between Smoking, Smoking Cessation and Mortality by Race, Ethnicity, and Sex Among U.S. Adults. And this study didn't show us anything new. I mean, smoking still kills people. Quitting smoking is still better for your health but it just kind of updates the data. You know, U.S. population has changed over the last 50 years. Smoking habits have changed. Cigarettes probably have changed. I don't know. And it just kind of updates the data about how bad is smoking for you really and what benefits do you get from quitting. Just in case anybody doesn't know, smoking causes 530,000 deaths annually in the U.S. and about 20% of Americans smoke. The benefits of quitting smoking are well-established But as I said, new data, you know, especially separated by gender and racial groups does not really exist. So this paper aimed to fill that gap. So it was a prospective cohort study and it set out to quantify the relationship between smoking, smoking cessation, and mortality by race, ethnicity, and sex. They looked at adults in a database called the U.S. National Health Interview Survey, which is designed to be representative of the U.S. population as a whole. They asked people if they smoked, if and when they quit, and then looked at all-cause mortality, cancer-related mortality, cardiovascular disease, and lower respiratory disease like COPD. And they adjusted for smoking status, and they weighted the answers by race, ethnicity, and sex. There were 551,000 people in this study, and they were followed for a really long time, for 21 years. So we thought this was a valid trial, especially with the long follow-up. As long as you remember that, of course, this is a prospective cohort study and not a randomized controlled trial. The results, basically smoking is bad for you. Um, Smoking was associated with excess mortality in all groups, and smoking cessation was associated with lower mortality. Basically, 60% of deaths among current smokers were attributed to smoking, and 44% of the deaths among ever smokers are attributed to smoking. This is a little surprising, actually, that it's still so high, even given advances in treatment for COPD, cardiovascular disease, and lung cancer. The mortality from smoking has actually gotten worse, not better, over the last few decades. So that was the first piece of data. Second is about the benefits of quitting. So if you quit 15 years before recruitment in this study, that was associated with reduction in the excess risk by about 90%. So basically bringing you almost back to the same risk level as a never smoker. If you quit between 5 and 14 years prior to entering this study, you achieved a 50% risk reduction. 
Finally, they stratified the results by race. So the highest increase in mortality was among whites with a three times higher mortality than current smokers. Blacks, Hispanics, and other races had a lower increase in mortality from smoking, uh, and smoking a little more than doubled their mortality. So for me, these results will definitely help me. I can tell my patients that 60% of smokers die from smoking, and they can reduce that risk by quitting. And basically, once they've quit for about 15 years, they're almost back to normal. They have the risk of someone who has never smoked, almost. And I can also tell my patients that the sooner they quit, the better. So I will definitely use the numbers in this study, um, although, of course, it's not going to change my practice because I am constantly harping on people to quit smoking, and I plan on continuing to do that. I think the biggest takeaway I have from this is that 60%. I, I do a lot of tobacco cessation counseling, especially my patients that are pre-contemplative, um, to kind of move them to contemplative. Oftentimes, I'll tell them that if they continue to smoke, there's a 60% chance that this is going to be their ultimate demise. And even people that are heavy smokers and know it's bad for you, I've never heard someone that was not appalled by that number. Yeah, I mean, it's really high. Like 60% of smokers are going to be killed by smoking. I also tell that to all my patients with opioid use disorder. You know, they've like quit using illicit fentanyl and meth and stuff, but they still can't, can't quit smoking. And I'll say, honestly, like smoking is the one that has the biggest chance of killing you. Yeah, that was a board question for me. It was the number one cause of death for patients with opioid use disorder. And you know, you want to say like overdose or, you know, injection drug use, but it's just tobacco related complications. Yeah, it's, it's sad that it's a legal, a legal product. All right. So I did do some work. So I, I have an episode now, episode 25. <laughs> so we covered this one. This is not our most recent article. But the reason that we covered this article is because we went to ASAM conference and the article was referenced by like half a dozen different presentations. So we thought it was worthwhile going over with everyone. It's high-dose buprenorphine induction in the emergency department for treatment of opioid use disorder from JAMA Network Open. It's from July 2021. So this was a NIDA-funded case series studies of 579 emergency department encounters among 391 unique patients with opioid use disorder. These patients were treated with a high-dose sublingual buprenorphine protocol at a large urban safety net ED between January 1, 2018 and December 31, 2018. The protocol involved patients with cows greater than or equal to 8 receiving 4 to 8 milligrams of buprenorphine followed by clinician judgment guided selection. So the, the doc or the APP got to pick whether or not they would use a standard induction protocol or whether or not they would use a high-dose induction protocol. And so the difference between the two is the standard induction protocol would tap out at 8 to 12 milligrams of buprenorphine on day one, often not enough to capture symptoms in patients with severe opioid use disorder, and the high-dose induction protocol would go up to 32 milligrams total on day one of buprenorphine, so a very high dose kind of outside of the previous recommended guidelines for initial dosing. Primary outcomes were occurrence of precipitated withdrawal and any serious event attributable to buprenorphine administration. So that was like a wash basket term that involved sedation, decreased respiratory rate, hypoxia, naloxone administration during the hospitalization or within 24 hours of uh, the emergency department encounter. Interestingly, uh, you know, when you look at the results, clinician-guided judgment actually favored the high-dose induction group. And actually, throughout the study, it looks like it was increasingly used. It was a very short emergency department stay. So I got to give like props to this emergency department because the median ED stay for these patients was 2.4 hours with some of them being admitted and some of them being discharged home. That's incredibly short. So that's 
amazing to me, 2.4 hours. So this did not slow down their day, did not slow down the delivery of care to other patients, the use of this protocol or treating opioid use disorder in the emergency department. Yeah. And they did it so quickly. I remember, if you remember when we presented it live, we had someone who was with us who runs like a mobile buprenorphine van and they did it so quickly. She was thinking that she should just do it. If they could do it in 2.4 hours, so could she. She could get someone fully through their induction in like less than an afternoon in her mobile van. That's crazy. Primary outcomes showed that precipitate withdrawal, it was incredibly rare. So only 0.8% of all cases experienced precipitated withdrawal. And actually four out of those five cases were not with the high dose buprenorphine. It's with that initial test dose of four to eight milligrams that you're using regardless. And I think that's interesting because that probably is something that we often think of that we were hesitant to push the dose on earlier days, but really kind of our, our standard initial dose really is the risk where you have just enough to knock off opioid, not enough to kind of capture opioid receptor uh, satiation. The high dose protocol was also very safe with no patients admitted for treatment of buprenorphine precipitated withdrawal or experiencing any serious uh, buprenorphine related adverse events. So it was safe and very effective and precipitated withdrawal was incredible rare, really isolated only to five patients, four of which were during the initial test, four to eight milligrams. And the last patient was actually a polysubstance use disorder uh, presentation. So like they think that that kind of compounded and made it difficult to interpret what state of withdrawal they were in when they initiated. While not an emergency department physician, I do feel that this high-dose buprenorphine induction pathway appears very safe and effective. I said when we initially presented the article that I took a picture of the algorithm on my phone and plan to use it at some point in the future. And I can say that um, I was looking back and I've actually used a modified version of this now twice doing inpatient consults at our, our mothership hospital for patients that were admitted on day of hospitalization zero, had very severe withdrawal and opioid use disorder, and were basically threatening to leave uh, patient-directed discharge. Um, I did tap out at 24 milligrams, but otherwise I did kind of escalate very quickly and it was very effective. And uh, my N of two also did not have any precipitated withdrawal. Yeah. I really want to figure out a version of this to use for home inductions. Again, I don't see a lot of precipitated withdrawal, but it is a risk. And I also would like to be able to get patients through the induction more quickly. I don't quite have a good protocol that I think patients could manage a hundred percent independently, but if you come across one, let me know. I feel like the takeaway too is like, you know, for the induction, when you hit precipitated withdrawal, I feel like symptoms are alleviated with giving more medication. You know, I think we often back off. I think you really need to kind of like put the foot down the gas pedal and keep going forward. This is an article that really changed my attitude. It didn't really change my practice, but it gave me a lot to think about. This is episode 26 and the paper was called does a survivorship model of opioid use disorder improve public stigma or policy support? It was from the Journal of General Internal Medicine, and it was just a really, really great article. So they were testing out a new conceptual model of addiction recovery with the goal of finding something that might reduce stigma related to having and treating opioid use disorder. The model of opioid use disorder that we currently use often is called the chronic disease model, in which addiction is treated as a chronic disease like diabetes, which requires constant care and is always present in the patient's body, mind, and life. The new concept that they were testing out was called the survivorship model of addiction recovery, in which a patient is conceived of having survived addiction the same way you might survive a bout of cancer. They might need some ongoing 
specialized care, but the disease itself is no longer present in their body or mind or an issue that they have to deal with on a daily basis. So that's an addiction survivor or the survivorship model. So the subjects in this study were regular people and they read a vignette of someone with a past addiction, one emphasizing this chronic disease model and the other one emphasizing the survivorship model. There was a photo with each vignette too, and the photos were of a black man, a white man, a black woman, and a white woman, so they could also compare the effects of race and gender. After the participants read the vignette, they answered questions about what they thought about addiction, what they thought about addiction-related policies, and what they thought about having people with addiction in their lives to see if the different vignettes led to different kinds of attitudes. In terms of the results, portraying opioid use disorder through a survivorship model resulted in slightly warmer feelings towards people with opioid use disorder compared to the chronic disease model. There was no modification of this effect from the vignette's race or gender, and the significance of this small difference is not clear, and it did not correlate with an increased support for any kind of addiction policies. In general, Among the participants, there was broad support for policies that help people with opioid use disorder, but which vignette you saw didn't seem to change that very much, and significant personal stigma still existed. So in conclusion, using a survivorship model of opioid use disorder led to somewhat warmer feelings towards people compared to the chronic disease model, but public stigma remained high. I personally have started using this model, especially with patients who are in long-term recovery, And I've talked to some other addiction doctors who are doing that as well. And patients often really feel like this is a way they like to describe themselves and really captures their experience. Um, But I'm not going to count on it to really reduce stigma. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It definitely is a way that I think that people feel more proud of themselves when they associate with being like a survivor than having a chronic relapsing disease. So I think that if that's how they relate to themselves and that's how they feel, then I think that, you know, respecting that's really important. I think that the biggest thing I took away from this article, I was, I was incredibly optimistic about the views of the subjects on our safety and risk mitigation protocols in our country. So like the, the, the favorability of uh, injection safe houses, of naloxone uh, programs, needle exchange programs. These are things that I would think that actually the general public would not be that supportive of. And actually, most people were very supportive of that, which I think is a big shift Yeah, people were really supportive of those policies. They were less supportive of having people with addiction in their lives. So some of the questions were about, would you want to marry someone with an addiction or have them as a friend or have them as a neighbor? People were um, a little less into that. Still work to go. (laughs) Yeah, still a little bit of work to do. Um, All right. Episode 27, the first opioid prescription. And for those of you who are listening, this episode is eligible for CME credit, and the links are in the show notes for episode 27 itself. And other episodes will hopefully be eligible for CME credit in the future, but right now, as we're recording this, episodes 27 and 28 are already available for CME credit. So this paper was titled, Risk Factors for the Development of Opioid Use Disorder After First Opioid Prescription, a Swedish National Study. It asked a bunch of questions investigating the connection between the first opioid prescription and the subsequent development of opioid use disorder. I had chosen to present this article because data on the risks of opioid prescribing are a bit old, and the landscape has really changed with regards to both opioid prescribing and illicit opioid supply, and it's hard to know now whether 
an initial prescription for opioids has anything to do with someone's death from injecting illicit fentanyl. So this was a prospective study using several population-wide Swedish databases looking at people who had received a first opioid prescription and whether or not they developed a subsequent opioid use disorder. We thought this was a valid trial, even though we weren't able to fully evaluate all of the statistical modeling because it was too complicated for us. And the patients in this study, which was done in Sweden, were different than our patients here in Pennsylvania. But we still thought it was a valid trial. They did show a connection between the receipt of a first opioid prescription and the development of subsequent opioid use disorder. The main result showed that 24.8% of patients received a first opioid prescription, and of them, about 1%, a little less than 1%, developed a new opioid use disorder. The hazard ratio for opioid use disorder after an initial opioid prescription was 7.1, with a pretty narrow confidence interval. And there was a mean time to onset of 3.41 years. Opioid prescription renewal was associated with a hazard ratio of 3.66 for development of opioid use disorder. And the risk for opioid use disorder over the first one, two, and five years after that first prescription were 0.17, 0.32, and 0.68% respectively. So it increased, the risk increased as time went on. The study also showed that the five strongest multivariable predictors were, in order, prior drug use disorder, prior depression and anxiety disorder, prior criminal behavior, prior alcohol use disorder, and male sex. Interestingly, in this study, they did not find a strong genetic component to the development of opioid use disorder. And I'm not sure if that's because the Swedish population is pretty homogenous. So maybe genetically, they're all the same anyway. But they really didn't find a very strong genetic component to opioid use disorder development. They did a bunch of different models, and they estimated that about a third of the association between the first opioid prescription and subsequent development of opioid use disorder was causal. So bottom line was that in this study, the receipt of a first opioid prescription was responsible for the development of opioid use disorder with a number needed to harm of 333. That's my rough calculation. So one in 333 patients who received an opioid prescription would develop opioid use disorder because of that prescription. This study didn't really change my practice, but it did reinforce to me that opioids, even a single prescription, have a risk of developing opioid use disorder in the future. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't change my practice that much, right? I think we already tried to avoid these if possible and use alternative pain management regimens. And I don't really know whether or not the predictors really... I mean, we, they kind of make sense, right? Previous history of substance use disorder, anxiety. These things are definitely kind of red flags for opioid prescribing, although kind of like withholding opioid prescription in the appropriate context because of that doesn't seem very ethical either. Well, it's just hard to know why if you receive a prescription for opioids, let's say you have a surgery, and then five years later you develop opioid use disorder, how is that prescription responsible? I mean, it seems like it is for a small subset of people, but why, you know? <laughs> Episode 28, persistence of significant pain interference following substance use disorder remission, negative associations with psychological and physical recovery from drug and alcohol dependence, January 2022. This is a subgroup analysis of 10,916 patients with at least one lifetime substance use disorder diagnosis drawn from the very large National Epidemiologic Study on Alcohol and Related Conditions, Wave 3, that's the NEZARC-3, 
many of us that have taken our boards should, should know that study very intimately. It's looking at self-reported sociodemographic characteristics, substance use disorder criteria, pain, psychiatric comorbidities, medical comorbidities, and then they looked at functional measurements, both mental health component score and a physical functioning score. And it was looking at the prevalence and association between substance use disorder, chronic pain, and psychological and physical functioning. So I think it's very interesting because this is a study trying to see like what's the relationship between these conditions that we all see in the clinic that often kind of co-mingle together, kind of chicken or the egg type phenomenon. The results showed that chronic pain was incredibly common in patients with substance use disorder. So 20.6% reported significant pain and pain interference and even more common in patients with substance use disorder in remission. So people even further down the road, possibly due to older age, it was even higher at 25.6% of patients. Substance use disorder remission was associated with improvement in psychological health and well-being, but it has no change in a patient's physical functioning or pain interference. Adults reporting moderate to severe pain interference, they represented a very vulnerable subgroup of this population. So patients with pain kind of interfering with their daily activities, it was kind of a group that we often kind of associate, non-white patients, homeless patients, patients with psychiatric comorbidities, uh, patients with multiple medical comorbidities. And that was regardless of whether or not the substance use disorder was active or not. The article does emphasize that the commonly used silo approach for chronic pain where I think many of us see this in the clinic. Basically, a patient has mental health issues, they see a psychiatrist, they have possibly addiction issues, they see an addiction medicine physician, they see their primary care physician for primary care, they see medical pain management for opioid prescribing, they see interventional pain just for injections, and they might see a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic doctor for their primary pain generator. It probably doesn't work, it's more likely to be ineffective, right? So if you have all of these different people just looking at a piece of the problem, it's probably not gonna have an improvement in overall well-being and general functioning. While not practice changing, I am gonna to continue to treat patients with substance use disorder at my follow-up appointments, kind of from a multimodal perspective, treating both physical illness, addiction-related uh, medical conditions and addiction cravings, and also at the same time, uh, treat any kind of physical and mental comorbidities that they have. They did talk about that hopefully with the reemergence of these multidisciplinary pain management clinics that kind of attack all of these things simultaneously, that they may be more helpful to uh, address such issues in the future, pending kind of like acceptance of these by commercial reimbursement. Well, I thought it was a great article. Um, I see pain being an issue for my patients with opiate use disorder all the time. A lot of them got into opiates in the first place because of chronic pain. And I've been so happy with a new multidisciplinary pain treatment center that we started at St. Max's. I say we, I had nothing to do with starting it, but our health system started it. And it's just been awesome. And I was recently speaking with the lead doctor there about a patient with chronic pain, opiate use disorder, oxycodone, buprenorphine, you know, and this doctor said, oh no, I'll take over all of those issues. So this is a doctor willing to address mental health, physical health, and addiction all in one clinic. And it was pretty awesome. Episode 29, I think we were kind of excited about this one. This was varenicline and counseling for vaping cessation, a double-blind randomized parallel group placebo-controlled trial from BMC. 
medicine, July 2023. So common issue in the clinic with kind of the rise of vaping and vaping related illness is that, you know, people that do vape, they want to know how can they stop vaping. And I think prior to this study, we really had almost a total lack of any data regarding any medical interventions or efficacy of any of, of our currently used treatments for tobacco use disorder. Could we use them for vaping? So this was a double-blind, randomized, parallel group, placebo-controlled trial funded by Grant, comparing safety and efficacy of combining 12 weeks of renicline at kind of typical treatment dose after a ramp-up of one milligram twice daily versus placebo with vaping cessation counseling. So this was counseling plus placebo or of renicline. You know, so 140 participants from April 2018 to September 2020. All patients in the trial underwent baseline interviews with randomization to a placebo pill or varenicline for 12 weeks, followed by 12 weeks afterwards where they observed them without any intervention. And during that period of time, I liked the fact that they collected both subjective and objective measures, including exhaled carbon monoxide levels and salivary cottoning levels to assess for vaping cessation. So not just self-reported data. The results of this in this subgroup of highly motivated patients, so when I say highly motivated, just to give you an idea, they had a visual analog scale of how motivated the patient felt that they were for cessation of the vaping-related product, and they all scored on average an 8 out of 10. 72.9% of patients in this trial, they reported that they were concerned regarding the potential long-term health risks of electronic cigarette use. So they also felt that not only was this something that they were highly motivated to do, but they actually felt that their health depended upon cessation. Varenicline with counseling did outperform tobacco cessation with placebo and had higher biochemically validated cessation and lower seven-day point prevalence of electronic cigarette use. There was statistically significant factors affecting abstinence, which are kind of what we would expect. So patients had higher levels of anxiety on the Beck's anxiety inventory. They had decreased chances of success with vaping cessation. Uh, patients that had a cohabitant vapor in the house or someone else was vaping around them, they were also less likely to be successful. There were more adverse events in the Brennan group compared to the placebo group, and those were mostly nausea, flatulence, and abnormal dreams. That was surprising to me, the flatulence. I hear about the nausea and the abnormal dreams, but I've never had a patient tell me that they have flatulence from varenicline. Um, but it's probably there. I'm just not asking. In summary, um, you know, this was definitely practice changing for me. Previously, if a patient came to me with a vaping-related issue and wanted to quit vaping, um, I really had no evidence-based answer for them to, in, order, in terms of resources to give them other than typical uh, tobacco cessation counseling. Now with this study and moving forward, I actually do feel confident that I could provide uh, varenicline in addition to uh, tobacco cessation counseling and vaping cessation counseling to increase uh, these patients' chances of getting off of this product and improving their health. Yeah, I was totally winging it before I read this paper about what to do with people who wanted to quit vaping. So this paper was pretty awesome. This was kind of more from the, the background of this. but I was, I was surprised that there's a substantial amount of data that actually compared to like tobacco, the average person probably overestimates the harm of vaping products, which is I thought was very interesting. I, I, I wouldn't have thought that, um, but I guess there is a fair amount of, of literature behind that. So I think a lot of patients are trying to, to terminate this habit as soon as possible. All right. Last one, race and medication for opioid use disorder. So article number 30, 
was titled Racial Inequality in Receipt of Medications for Opioid Use Disorder. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May 2023. And this article wins the award for the most journal clubs I presented it at. I think I presented this article five times at five different journal clubs, if you include the podcast. So definitely it got a lot of airtime for me. Some brief background. In 2022, 105,263 Americans died from drug overdose. Most of them were opioids, and although the death rate has leveled off a bit, the death rate among Black Americans has accelerated, and in 2020, it exceeded the death rate among whites. The rate of death among Hispanic people has also dramatically increased in the last few years. So just to put some specific numbers on that, the 2021 death rate among Blacks is 33.5 per 100,000 person years, and among whites, it was 28.4 per 100,000 person years. And we all know that full opioid agonists like buprenorphine and methadone are the standard of care for opioid use disorder. And yet previous studies have shown real significant racial disparities in receipt of these medications. So the clinical question in this paper was, are there racial and ethnic differences in the receipt of medications for opioid use disorder among Medicare beneficiaries with disability after a serious opioid use disorder related medical event? The patients in this study were a random sample of Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries due to disability. They had to be adults, and they had an index event indicating opioid use disorder, like an overdose or admission to an inpatient treatment center or an injection-related health condition that required a hospitalization, like endocarditis. They then followed these people for six months after the index event and looked at rates of medications to treat the opioid use disorder like buprenorphine, naltrexone, and naloxone, the receipt of high-risk medications, opioid analgesics and benzodiazepines, and the use of medical services overall as a measure of access to care. So they also looked at the differences in these outcomes according to race and ethnic group. A big caveat is that this paper does not include methadone since prior to 2020, methadone was not covered by Medicare and this is a study using Medicare claims data. So we thought this was a valid trial, although we were sometimes a little wary of claims database trials. The lack of methadone was a big problem though since many patients may have received methadone but it wasn't counted. It was also a little hard to sort out the effects of race specifically on what happened to the patients after their initial visit since the groups were totally different at baseline. However, this is more representative of what is actually happening in practice where different racial groups do not receive equivalent treatments for opioid use disorder. So the study really did describe what's going on. Talking about the results, so remember the first the, the main clinical question is Are there racial and ethnic differences in the receipt of medications for opioid use disorder among Medicare beneficiaries with disability after serious opioid use disorder-related medical event? And the answer is yes. Yes, there are differences. So first, there was a huge difference between Blacks, Hispanics, and Whites in the primary outcome, which was the number that received buprenorphine or naltrexone for opioid use disorder. Remember, and this is after an index opioid use disorder event, like an overdose. So there was no question that people had opioid use disorder. After these events, 13% of the Blacks, 18% of the Hispanics, and 23% of the Whites received buprenorphine. This is a huge difference. And what was really interesting to me is that the entire difference was driven by differences in buprenorphine receipt before the index event. So in every group, the percent receiving buprenorphine increased by about 3% after the index event. So the presence of the index event did little to boost the prescribing of medication for opioid use disorder for any of these patients, no matter the race, despite them all having obvious uncontrolled opioid use. 
All three groups had a high number of ambulatory medical visits as well, about six to seven in six months. And despite that, they did not get initiated on buprenorphine. So I don't think this article changed my day-to-day practice, and it was kind of depressing, but I was really glad that I read it. You know, there are really significant contributors to health inequality, including things like structural racism, stigma against treatment, geographic distribution of services, um, differences in health insurance coverage, incarceration rates, and just overall racial segregation of healthcare. So my awareness of racial disparity in care will help me, I hope, provide all services equally to my patients in my own practice. It'll help me be aware of some of the reasons my Black patients do not get needed care and hopefully help me advocate for policies within our health system that address health disparities. Yeah, I mean, I think that has kind of like this article really summarizes the problem that we've kind of already aware of that we just need to do a better job of as a, it's just a tough problem. So John, of these 10 papers, which was your favorite? Hmm. It's like, which of your children do you love the most? You know, I think that the two favorite ones I, that I would have to say is that the high-dose buprenorphine induction has been really useful for me, I think, because it's been like the most practical. And the same with the Chantix article, I think that, or Varenicline, I'm sorry, um, just because I think that those are two things I, I do on a daily basis. I think the other ones were very interesting. I, I like some of them that changed the way I look at patients with substance use disorder and understand what they're going through. So I think I've learned a lot from the other ones as well. How about you? I think my favorite was the addiction survivors paper. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily the most practice changing, but it was my favorite. It was easy to understand. It was fun to read. It gave me a lot to think about. I have mentioned it to a bunch of patients and everyone likes to talk about it. So I think that one's going to be my favorite for this set. So your favorite was your article and my favorite was my article. So we summarize this. Uh huh. I wonder what that means. Fair enough. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email. You can join our Facebook group. There are a lot of ways to get in touch with us, and all the links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.